We've all heard the well-meaning advice to meet new people and grow our networks. Turns out the research shows that we should strengthen the relationships we already have. On this episode, how to assess your network and the starting points to do better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 525. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the messages that most all of us have received at some point in our careers, in fact, we probably have heard it quite a bit, is the importance of having a strong network the critical nature of networking in our lives. And yet it is something that so many of us do struggle with, and we often fall short of our own expectations. Today, this conversation, I think, will help us to really take the first steps to continuing to strengthen and improve the network that we already have. I'm so glad to welcome to the show today, Marissa King. She is a professor of organizational behavior at the Yale School of Management, where she developed and teaches a popular course entitled Managing Strategic Networks. Over the past 15 years, she has studied how people's social networks evolve, what they look like, and why that's significant. Her most recent line of research analyzes the individual and group-level behaviors that are necessary for large-scale organizational change. Her research has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Atlantic, NPR, and many other places. She is the author of the book, Social Chemistry, Decoding the Patterns of Human Connection. Marissa, I'm so glad to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. I know that some people have seen the title of this episode, they saw the word network, and in their minds, they are thinking, ugh, networking. (laughs) It's that thing I know I'm supposed to do, and maybe I'm not doing as much as I'd like. And one of the things that you draw as a distinction in your work is between the words networking and network. Could you tell me about that distinction? Absolutely. You started out in the intro talking about that advice that so many of us get about how important it is to think about networking. And that's in many places where I started this journey also. I had spent you know many, many years in a basement by myself studying actually social networks, not networking. And when it came time for me to get a job and enter the professional realm, I kept hearing that same advice. But what I knew from all the research I had done in actually studying social networks is that advice about thinking about networking was really misguided. And for me, that actually led to an inability to form the types of relationships that I knew would be helpful. So if you look at the vast majority of outcomes that most people care about, how likely you are to get a job, your pay, your promotion, even your mental health and your longevity, Certainly networks matter, but it's not how many people you know. And so that distinction about thinking about what is networking versus what is networks is really, really key. And oftentimes when we're thinking about networking, where we have an, that I, an idea in mind that we're trying to meet someone with it, oftentimes with a given intention in mind. And that for many, many people is really morally off-putting. Um, it makes people feel quite uncomfortable. For me, it made me feel like I simply don't know how to do this. So I just quit and give up. Uh-huh. But if we instead think about networks and all of those 
benefits that we were just talking about really come from networks themselves. Networks are simply the traces of interaction we have, whether it's bumping into a barista when getting a coffee in the morning or your more enduring relationships with friends and family. And that network that we all have is can be thought of as a map. And by understanding what it looks like, it gives us a strong sense of where we've been in the past, but also where we're likely to head in the future. And it really is good news, especially for those of us who have struggled. I know I have through most of my career building a network as far as thinking about more people. And yet it's really, it's, it's interesting that the people who really have strong networks are not necessarily focusing on finding more people. They're actually really investing better and more consistently in the relationships they already have, aren't they? That's exactly right. And by starting to understand what your current network looks like and what its strengths as well as what its drawbacks are, you can make more informed decisions about what the optimal investment is for you. Should you be strengthening your existing relationships? Should you be trying to expand your horizons and bridge between different groups that normally wouldn't talk to each other? So starting to think differently about relationships and not just simply meeting new people is going to be the most effective strategy for most people. There are different kinds of networks, and you've uncovered in your research that there are three that tend to explain the way many of our networks have emerged in our lives. Could you share what those three look like so we could start to get a sense of what that map looks like for each one of us? Sure. So what we know from close to three decades of research in the social sciences is that most people's networks can be characterized as one of three types. Either they can be thought of as brokers, conveners, or expansionists. And each of those different types has different benefits and drawbacks. And we can start to think through what each of the types are, and hopefully this will allow you to also start to uncover more of what your own network looks like. So we can start with brokers and brokers are really characterized by the fact that they tend to span social circles that normally wouldn't come together. So you can ask yourself if you imagine having a barbecue or a birthday party and you think about inviting people from different realms of your life, asking yourself, would most people there already know one another? Or would you perhaps be uneasy about um, one group meeting another? If that characterizes what you're party would look like, then there's a good chance that you're a broker. Brokers are often the people in organizations who, for instance, may have worked in engineering and then spent a good deal of time in marketing and also like to play bridge on the weekend. And because those groups don't normally talk to one another, by bringing those ideas and the conversations within those different social circles together, brokers are really poised to be creative and innovative. One of the hallmarks of that type of network is really creativity and innovation, since we know that most innovation comes from recombining existing ideas or perspectives that normally wouldn't come together. And brokers, in part, do this because they have a very uh, sort of cosmopolitan way of living their life, but they also tend to be something known as high self-monitors. So when people think about networks, and particularly think about networking, they often think the biggest personality factor that's going to matter, for instance, is extroversion versus introversion. But it turns out extroversion matters very little. And the most important psychological characteristic for determining what type of network you have is actually something that psychologists refer to as high self-monitoring, which is really a chameleon-like personality. And 
to figure out if you're a high self-monitor, you, you can ask yourself, are you good at making impromptu speeches on things you know nothing about? Um, if <laughs> you answer yes, then you have this chameleon-like characteristic that makes you really good at translating across groups. And th- that property makes you much more likely to be a broker. So the brokers are really innovative. They're really creative. They also tend to have more work-life balance. But the downside of this type of network is that brokers are often greeted with suspicion because they're not really a part of any one group or they're often seen by like, are you part of us? Or are you not part of us? Uh. Um, which leads them oftentimes to be greeted with suspicion. But the way to overcome that, we know from research by Adam Kleinbaum is actually to broker with empathy. So even for that negative potential downside, there is a way to overcome it. The other two are expansionists and conveners. Um, what did those look like and how are they different from brokers? Sure. So if you imagine brokers as being in the middle of this constellation of different social circles that normally wouldn't come together, a convening-like network is really characterized by a dense web of social interactions that has a lot of depth. So imagine you're at that same birthday party or barbecue and everyone already knows each other. That is characteristic of a convening-like network. Conveners also invest a lot in maintaining their existing set of relationships. So there's a heavy investment. And the benefit of that is that convening-like networks tend to have a lot of reputational benefits. They're characterized by strong trust. They're good for implementation if you're trying to get things done. And they also, of all the different network types, they're the one that's most likely to provide mental health benefits and psychological support. So conveners tend to build this in part in the same way that all of us, our networks get built. In part, it's due to just circumstances. Conveners often will have lived in the same place for a long period of time or at the same job for a long, been at the same job for a long period of time, which gives this depth and cohesion to their networks. They also tend to have psychological predispositions to not like uncertainty. So if you don't like changing plans at the last minute, you may be a convener. And that need for psychological certainty helps explain why there's such intensity and trust within these types of networks. And so the benefits really is accrue from these trust and reputational factors. But the downside is that conveners can oftentimes be at risk for groupthink. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And they look really different than expansionists as far as as though networks it's it seems like so expansionists and conveners, in many ways, if you think about how they're investing in their relationship or their preferences between knowing a smaller number of people very deeply, which is a defining trait of conveners, in contrast, expansionists, or their networks are characterized by knowing an extraordinarily large number of people, but perhaps they know them less well. They, because we all have to make this, this, one, this is one dimension, we're all essentially making a trade-off on, are we going to know a smaller number of people, but know them really well? Or are we going to know a lot of people, but not have as much depth to our relationships? And due to time constraints, which everyone has, but also cognitive constraints, um, this is one trade-off we're all making that determines what type of network we tend to fall in. So expansionists are oftentimes what we think of as quintessential networkers. They have these outsized networks that are extraordinarily large. Most of us know around 650 people on average, but expansionists will know thousands and magnitudes of order more than 650. And you can think about trying to figure out whether or not you're expansionist. For instance, if you live in the United States, you could ask yourself how many people you know name Emily or how many people you know name Alan. Um, And in thinking about whether or not you know them, you can ask, have you seen them in the past two to three years face-to-face, or could you reach out to them without having to try to search for them online? 
And if you know more than two people named Emily or two people named Alan, you're likely an expansionist. So your network is well over a thousand people. And the benefits of an expansionist type network or you have a lot of influence, you have a lot of visibility, you can change minds. But the downside, surprisingly, is the expansionists are far more likely to be lonely than the other types of networks. Huh. Fascinating. And I, I know so many people named Emily. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting to how like that, like a data point like that can really be an indicator. And I'm guessing there's some overlap here too. Like you, you may not necessarily be just one of these, like you might lean in more in one place. Is there a spectrum here? There certainly is a spectrum and you can be more than one type. For instance, it's quite common to be a broker and an expansionist. It's pretty rare. It's actually extraordinarily rare to be both a broker and a convener. So some people do manage to do that, which is an extraordinarily powerful combination. Um, But there's certainly you can fall into more than one category. And importantly, the type of network you have changes over time. So it can change due to your life circumstances. Uh, For instance, we naturally tend to be more like expansionists when we're 25 and then our networks get smaller over time. But there's fluidity just due to your station on life or the circumstances that you're in. But also importantly, that we can change our network, um, which is really critical to thinking about, all right, if I need more social support or if I need more creativity or innovation at work, how can I think about changing my network to get to those outcomes? Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because, of course, I think we have many of us thought about the importance of strengthening our networks and helping to really gain value from our networks and to offer them value too. And of course, COVID has really gotten us thinking about that even more, apparently, because so much of the traditional way that we connect with people has changed. And it was interesting to me in looking at some of the things that you've looked at around just COVID and some of the research that's come out, there's one thing, I think this is out of the book, where you say, from looking at COVID, loneliness in individuals has increased, but those who reported having five very close relationships have not experienced an increase in loneliness. The duration and frequency with which one connects with those close relationships are also factors. And I was thinking about that term, very close. What does very close look like? Well, that's a really good question. I think oftentimes there's a misconception about how much frequency of interaction matters. If you just think quite simply, we oftentimes, if you naively start to think about this, what is very close? I mean, like people often will think of it's just how frequently you see someone. But the reality is that many of us spend our days surrounded by colleagues or people who will forever remain casual acquaintances. And what characterizes the difference between why those relationships forever remain, right? A work friend, whatever that means, versus being a very close relationship isn't simply the amount of time, but it's what is invested in that relationship. And critically, how much trust and reciprocity exists within that relationship. And that way of thinking about it. So for instance, how much mutual trust, if I was in a really, if I was in a time of emergency, would I feel comfortable reaching out to you is what I think distinguishes who is a very close tie versus other types of the many other types of relationships that we have in our lives. And I'm thinking about what you said a bit ago too, of the people that we tend to think of, of doing this quote unquote, well, 
often are the expansionists because they have the largest networks and they know the most number of people. And yet you said a bit ago that those often are the folks who struggle with loneliness the most. How is that possible? Yeah, I think this highlights the key trade-offs that we're all making when we think about our networks. I mean, you know, it feels like almost a cliche to talk about, you know, the famous rock star or movie star who then reports really high levels of loneliness. But we know that this is empirically true, that oftentimes that love that because the larger your network is or the more visibility, it means necessarily you have typically less time to invest in more supportive, stronger relationships, those people who you could reach out to in a time of real need, because it's really an investment allocation, right? You can think of this as an investment allocation decision. And for instance, the bigger network you have, you simply can't invest as much in developing the deeper, stronger relationships. And particularly knowing that the people that you're close to are also close with one another. And that's, what's really interesting about a convening like network. It's not just that I know you, Dave, and I also am friends with Emily, but it's really also critical that you and Emily are also friends when we start to think about emotional and social support. And that's just not possible, or it's far less likely with these really large networks. And it's not just in the famous people that you face, uh, you see really struggling with this. Also for among CEOs, CEOs reports extraordinarily high levels of loneliness. Almost 50% of CEOs will report that they're lonely. So that idea that it's lonely at the top is true. And in part, it's just not having the time to invest, but also because one's network is so large, there's not that ability to have closure with one's network or these dense webs of trust. For the person who finds themselves with that large network, but maybe doesn't have as many of those kind of those close, trusting, really close relationships. Um, I know you're really big on just doing a small start, doing something consistently. The people who you see who maybe are the expansionists who start to actually develop some of those very close relationships, what's one thing they do that works? I would say the easiest place to start is actually to think about how you can help someone else. So before we were talking about what defines these extraordinarily close ties and what distinguishes them is that you feel like you could reach out to them in a time of need. And for many, many people, it's really difficult to ask for help. And first off, I would say you just, you can ask for help, you know, you know, even I think the conversation even now that's happened during the pandemic We have conversations saying, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm actually struggling with loneliness. That wasn't true two years ago. But it doesn't necessarily have to be like, hey, can you help me? I'm lonely. But most people actually find it's far easier to reach out and give help to someone else rather than asking. But that's what it's the heart of this idea of reciprocity, right? That we're in a mutually beneficial beneficial, trusting, helpful relationship. So the easiest thing to do is actually to reach out to someone. It may be someone you lost contact with two or three years ago, or it could be someone that is a friendly acquaintance, but you would like to get to know better and try to help them in whatever way that may be, even simply reaching out to them and saying, hey, I was thinking of you, or I heard this great podcast. I think you might be interested in giving them something. And that idea of thinking about investing in the relationship is really what's at the heart of it. And in the benefit, right? Giving help is easier than asking for help. Mm, <laughs> um, but yeah. asking for help also 
opens up a level of vulnerability that really can deepen and accelerate a relationship. So if you feel comfortable asking for help, that's the best way to move forward fast. But for most people, offering to give help to someone else is going to be an easier start. I so appreciate that invitation. What a wonderful place to start and and to do it in a way of generosity and grace. And and I'm also thinking about one of the points you make in the book is that we underestimate how often people want to help us, don't we? Yeah, it's it's amazing to me the research that's been done on this. So, if you, for instance, in experiments when researchers have asked people to guess how many people on the street that they would have to approach and ask for their cell phone, whether to um, you, you know, I need your cell phone, can I borrow it? I've got to make an emergency call, or even filling out a survey, which no one likes really to be approached by someone asking them to fill out a survey. <laughs> right. But consistently, we far overestimate how many people that we're going to have to ask and underestimate how likely someone is to help us. As human beings, we're naturally geared to want to help other people. It's just part of our pro-social nature, but we don't realize that. And far too often, that leads us to underestimate how likely it is that someone else will be willing to help. But if what I always try to remember, right, is again, this idea of thinking about perspective taking. If I imagine being on the other side of it. Would I want to help? And almost always the answer is yes. And part of it is that being of help to someone else allows the person who's giving the help to have a sense of purpose, to have a sense of mastery, and also just simply to get outside of themselves. And in that in that way, we're naturally inclined to want to help other people because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Thinking about what you just said, And about 20 years ago, uh, someone had given me the advice or made the point that similar to you just made of people want to help you, but they need to know how. And I sent out an email to 20 or 25 people I knew best at the time, and I was in a career transition and said, hey, I'd love your help. Here's what I need. And it was how I landed my job at Dale Carnegie, actually, through one of those connections. And it changed the course of my career in a wonderful way. And uh, so I, I've experienced this myself, even though it felt really weird to do it at the time. I remember th- feeling really awkward asking for help. But I think like that's something almost all of us could do is we could go out and we could find someone that we could support today. Or maybe we'd have that courage to say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to ask for help if I'm the person who hasn't done that before. Like, like both of those would be a really good starting point. Yeah. And it is. Beauty is that through those small actions, you start to realize, oh, this is true. This is true. And it gives people the confidence to keep moving forward. And everything we know from research on social and human interaction that is oftentimes it's the lack of confidence that holds us back. And it's funny if you think about most other domains of our life, right? If you ask people if they're smarter than average, they'll tell you, yes, they're smarter than average. Well, you probably wouldn't ask them that, but they would tell you they're smarter than average if you ask them how smart they were. They'd also tell you they're better drivers than average. And this better than average effect is true in most domains of our life. But actually in human interaction, it's one of the few domains where we tend to think that we're worse off than other people. And that lack of confidence makes us actually focus on ourselves more, worry about self-presentation, how we're coming across, which makes it harder to connect. And so these very small changes are little acts, being willing to just try it and see what happens. The effect that that has on confidence really determines a much longer, more positive trajectory on being able to connect 
authentically and effectively with other people. Wow. Well, in thinking about connecting authentically and really leveraging the strength of a network, I'm thinking about it also from the other side, those who may have more of their preference toward convening and who do have really close relationships. You mentioned earlier that one of the challenges can be, you know, getting a little bit too much, you know, I think groupthink was what you mentioned, but but just not seeing more of the kind of the diverse, the new ideas, the creative paths. And I'm I'm thinking about that in the context of another point that comes out in the research is that dormant ties are also really likely to help give us good advice. And for the person who's a convener and, and really does have those close relationships, is that a place to, to lean in on? And if not, what's a good place for them to start? I would say for everybody thinking about this idea of dormant ties to so people you haven't seen in two to three years is one of the most effective places to start with tapping into the existing value in your network. And I always try to emphasize that there's extraordinary value in your existing network and focusing on how to tap into that is far more important than for most people than trying to expand or grow your network. And dormant ties are a really great place to start. In research that was done by Dan Levin at Rutgers and his colleagues, they ask executives to recall either 10 people that were they saw on a frequent basis that they regularly talked to and write down a list of those 10 people or 10 people that they haven't seen in two to three years and make that same list. And when they randomly assign people to reach out to existing ties or dormant ties, what they found out is that these ties that people hadn't seen in two to three years actually provided far more effective and insightful ideas on projects than their existing colleagues and contacts. And why this is true is that Dormant ties have this property of they're outside your usual social circle. There's outside this echo chamber that most of us tend to live in. But what's interesting about dormant ties is it's not just that they have these innovation and creativity benefits that would normally come from a brokerage-like network because they're outside of our usual social circle, but they also have trust. And the trust endures in relationships. And because of that, in many ways, it's actually easier to reach out to someone you may have lost touch with over the past three or four or five years due to whatever reason. It's much easier to reach out to them than try to start a new relationship. So if I had to give one piece of advice, I would say make a list of three people that you haven't seen in three years or more. And spend 30 minutes once a week just reaching out to them to say hello or perhaps asking for advice on a new project or just catching up and tapping into that. Your existing network is one of the most effective ways that you can strengthen it. Wow. Uh, you know, it's, it's it goes back to what you said early on of our tendency often is to feel like we need to join the new association or go to the conference we haven't been to before, which are all good things to do. But often we think about it through the lens of I have to expand my network and meet new people. And there's something to be said for that, of course. But we miss often the relationships that are right in front of us, the ones that we've already built and we've earned trust with, but maybe we've lost touch with a bit. Why not start there first? And and it's so much easier, right? <laughs> and yet we don't think to. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the pieces of the pandemic that's been most interesting to me to think about what happens to people's networks. and. What's driving a lot of what we've even seen over the past year or so is just how powerful out of the notion of out of 
sight out of mind truly is. So in my own research, for instance, I've seen that overall people's networks have shrunk by more than 16% or more than 200 people during the pandemic. And one of the reasons that's true is we simply forget people when we don't see them. It's almost as if they go outside our our relationship set of people that we think we could call upon or ask for advice or insight from, or just even get support from. And so that is something that we all tend to fall victim to. Uh, We know the studies that have looked at this have even found that feelings of closeness between non-family members drops by more than 80% after just two to three months without seeing one another. The trust endures, but our feelings of closeness do kind almost like falling off a cliff. And so it's really important to, one, think about, all right, accurately, what is the true reach of your network? And is there are there people that you have lost touch with that could be really beneficial? Because it's so easy to forget. Yeah. And I'm so curious about the closeness part you just mentioned, because e- even prior to the pandemic, there would be many people I'd run into who would say some version of, you know, yes, I, I go to a traditional office building, and I have people around me, but the people that I interact with are in different parts of the world or different companies. And a lot of my network tends to be virtual. And and I, of course, we're going to see more of that. Even if the virus disappears tomorrow, we've seen so much more of leverage of technology. And that's good in many ways. Yet, clearly, the the research, I mean, it's interesting to me, like one of the parts of the book, you talk about the research of folks who live on cul-de-sacs. And have houses that circle each other versus folks that live on through streets and the difference in the closeness of relationships of people who live on cul-de-sacs is really fascinating. Can we substitute the missing physical piece with being really intentional about online and video conferencing and other ways? Does that help us? Does it work? Is it sufficient? I, I don't know. Somewhere there's a question in here, but that's just like, well, I, it's just... I'm so curious. I mean, maybe it's too new to even know, but uh, what do you what do you think? I, mean, I think it, if we start uh, with this idea of how or what defines most of our networks, and if if you even wrote down the five people that aren't family that you are closest to, and then you looked at where you met them, the physical space, physical space, and where we spend our time. It, has the biggest impact on our network historically. And that physical space, whether it's, you know, you're living on a cul-de-sac with your and your porches on the front. So you really get to know your neighbors, or if your office is across from the bathroom. So everybody walks by your office over the course of the day, those decisions, which are often made unintentionally, right? So people rarely think about what effect is this house going to have on my network versus this other house. Right. Those decisions, which are oftentimes made unintentionally um, and unconsciously have an extraordinary effect on our network. And part of this is due to something known as the mirror exposure effect in psychology, which is simply that the more we see things, the more we like them. So even if you show pictures of someone's face, the faces that they see more frequently, they tend to, people will tend to actually think they like that person more. So some of this is due just to mere exposure. 
To the extent that that is true, right? That we just, because we're proximate to something, we like them more. And we know that this is true from random assignments to dormitories at MIT. You're most likely to be develop a close friendship with your next door neighbor. And even if someone lives just down the hall from you, but not right next door, there's a really significant decline in how likely that those friendships were to form. Mm-hmm. So this idea of mere exposure can be helpful, right? If we think about what is one of the benefits of social media, that it's perhaps possible that we can get some of these benefits by simply seeing each other more frequently. The problem is that it's hard to transition liking into a relationship with more depth, particularly virtually. And I think that this is going to be some of the challenges that we're going to face if we move towards more remote work or more virtual work, because our sense of social connection oftentimes comes through our senses. So part of it is, right, the psychological predisposition to like things we see more, but also we're human. So a lot of our, the quality of our connections is actually determined through things like eye contact. It's virtually impossible online to make effective eye contact, right? Like I can't look at the camera and look at you. It's just not possible. Yeah. Touch. I feel like I've had this longing, you know, there's this like longing for either just like a touch on the arm or a hug. It's our first sense to develop. We develop it in utero. We can communicate emotions through touch, like compassion that you can't convey through voice or eye contact. So some of those are going to be difficult to replicate. Uh, Some pieces are easier, right? So we know that empathy and Developing empathic accuracy and connection is easier for with voice only interaction in a virtual context. Working virtually, I think in the past year also has shown us just how much heterogeneity there is in people's preferences and how much social interaction they want and like. And we can adapt to that easier. So having one-on-one check-ins with people at work is easier to do in some ways than it is to do in person. I think we're going to have some difficult adjustments if we go too far in this direction in just the same way that three years ago, we would have been talking about the open office spaces with the idea that more interaction is better. I think we've swung to an extreme where that we're going to see the serious downsides of a lack of face-to-face interaction if we go too far into the other extreme. But there are things that we can do to be happier in the middle. Yeah, and I'm hearing a lot of ands there of and, and intentionality, right? We're all going to need to be a little bit more intentional. And I'm, I'm thinking about that, you know, what you said earlier, a, a lot of our networks have arisen because of circumstance, accident, what house we bought, you know, where our office was located. And perhaps now we need to maybe be a little more intentional about thinking about that and maybe creating some of those opportunities. And like you said, that's never going to replace the touch, the eye contact, all the things that are so important as far as human relationships. Marissa, we could go another two hours. <laughs> this is great. Um, so the book is called Social Chemistry, Decoding the Patterns of Human Connection. There's so much more in the book we're not touching on in this conversation. So if this has been helpful, I would really invite you to uh, to check out the book and really dive in on the details. And Marissa, one of the other resources that you've created that I know will be of interest to a lot of folks is there's an assessment to begin to illuminate where you know what your network looks like. Uh, how do folks do that, and what, what would they expect if they went through that assessment? 
You can discover whether you're a broker, expansionist, or a convener at assessornetwork.com, and it'll give you insight into what the strengths of your existing network are, as well as opportunities that you may have to think about other strengths you could explore. Wonderful. So we're going to get that link in the episode notes that'll also be in this week's weekly leadership guide, so watch for that. Marissa King is the author of Social Chemistry, Decoding the Patterns of Human Connection. Marissa, thank you so much for your work. It was a pleasure connecting with you. If this conversation got you thinking, several other episodes I'd invite you to also check out. One of them is episode 254, Use Power for Good and Not Evil. My guest on that episode was Dacker Keltner out at Berkeley's Greater Good Center. We talked about the relationship between power and empathy. I wish I could tell you that it was the case that the more power you get in your network, in your career, in the organizational chart inside your organization, that you're more likely to be more empathetic to others. However, the research is very clear that it's the opposite. The more power we get, the more political savvy, the more power we have within our networks, it is likely, and in fact is the case for most of us, that we are worse with empathy. In episode 254, Dacker and I talk about how we can work to correct that challenge and that pattern that many of us tend to fall into, especially when we gain more power in our careers and in our lives. By the way, that research is echoed in Marissa's book as well, and she also mentions that extensively. And so when you read her book, you'll want to pay attention to that section especially because this is a trap that many of us fall into as leaders of thinking that we are listening well, we're taking the time to be empathetic. In fact, that's a big challenge so many of us face, episode 254 for that. I'd also recommend episode 347, The Power of Weak Connections with David Burkus. This also shows up in Marissa's book about the opportunities that so often our weaker connections can provide to us in our network. The folks that we haven't talked to in six months, a year, a year and a half, often that trust is still there from having built that relationship initially. And also weaker connections can oftentimes be the place where we find new ideas, build other connections, uncover opportunities for our careers, and the people who are already willing and often able to help. Episode 347 is an invitation on how to do a better job at reaching out to weak connections. It's a great compliment to this conversation. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 500, Four Habits That Derail Listening with listening expert Oscar Trimboli. So many of you reached out to me last year after this episode aired and mentioned how helpful it was to you in identifying some of the patterns that you fall into that challenge you with your listening skills. Oscar and I talked about those in detail and, just as importantly, how to do better. And of course, listening, a key, key skill for so many of us in our networks and in building more effective relationships. All of these episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website and many others. We have a topic area under network. We have a topic area under conversations and so many others. If you found this helpful, 
I would invite you to go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. When you do, you're going to get access to the entire library since 2011 of all our expert conversations. Most importantly, those searchable by topics. You can find the thing you're looking for right now that will serve you and your organization in being as effective as possible. Plus access to all the book notes from interviews, the member cast, the free audio courses, and of course, my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday, including the episode notes and the key links from every conversation we've had here on the show, plus other resources that I found for you during the week online that I think will be helpful to you in your ongoing leadership development. Coachingforleaders.com is where to set that up, and you'll be off and running with the rest of us inside the portal so that we can help each other to continue to move forward on developing our leadership skills. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you for our next conversation this coming Monday. Take care, everybody.